We are in Genesis 46 this morning, going through the first verses of chapter 47. So we'll start in Genesis 46, verse 1, and work our way through chapter 47 and verse 12. I'm titling this sermon this morning, Israel Settles in Egypt. Israel settles in Egypt. That's the part of the of the story of Genesis where we are now. Joseph has finally revealed himself to his brothers who had sold him into slavery 22 years earlier. This is after a series of tests in which Joseph tested his brothers to see if they were still the same evil men they used to be. And thank God he had already begun to change them. And he continued to change them and mold them even through these experiences as they were tested. Their character was tested. But, as I said, Joseph then revealed himself to his brothers. They only knew him at this point as a strange ruler in Egypt. The Egyptian governor or prime minister or vizier, right-hand man of the pharaoh. They thought Joseph was lost to them. The brother they had hated and sold him to slavery. And yet, he speaks to them face to face after he clears the room of everyone else and says, I am Joseph. I'm the one you sold into slavery. But in the same breath, he tells them that he is not holding their sin against them. They are forgiven. He tells them not to be angry with themselves because of what they've done, because God had a much greater plan at work, and they should get their eyes off of themselves and their guilt, which is now finally... Exposed after all these years, they must get their eyes off themselves and onto the God who had actually sent Joseph into Egypt, even through their actions. God had sent Joseph ahead of his family into Egypt many years before them to put him in the position where he was now so that he could interpret the Pharaoh's dreams, predict the famine, prepare for the famine, and thus not only save Egypt and the nations from famine, but he would save the promised line of offspring, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom God would would fulfill all his redemptive promises to the world. God sent Joseph ahead of his family into Egypt to preserve many people alive, to preserve them a remnant in the earth. We ended the chapter, chapter 45 last time, seeing that Jacob renamed Israel by God when he was first told Joseph was still alive, he'd been lied to, told, and it would have been implied that Joseph had met his death many years earlier. But he's now told Joseph is still alive, and, and he's lord of all Egypt. And he sent these wagons to, to bring us to Egypt so we can live with him and he can provide for us. Jacob, at first, his heart became numb. He did not believe it. He couldn't take it in. He couldn't process it. But then his heart revived, his spirit revived, And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. That brings us to where we are now. Genesis 46. As we get into the flow of the story here, uh, well, first of all, before we get into that, we should, I should just mention the big idea that we'll see as we go through the text. Big idea is this. Standing on God's promises... Israel settled in Egypt to become a great nation. Standing on God's promises, Israel settled now in Egypt 
to become a great nation. Now, as we get into the flow of the story, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 46, um, Israel worships and God speaks. This is very significant. We'll come back to this toward the end of the sermon. But Israel has had a lot of silence from God. Jacob has had a lot of silence from God for many years now. But now, God again speaks to him as as Israel worships. Verse 1, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Beersheba, pause there, is in southern Canaan on the way to Egypt. So he's already on his way out of Canaan. Beersheba is considered around this time the southern border. It's down in the Negev region of southern Canaan. But it says that he he, uh, came to Beersheba. He took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. This has been a pattern, right? The patriarchs, as they move from place to place in the promised land of Canaan, they often pause to worship and to, again, express their allegiance, their continued loyalty to the God who's in covenant with them. And God, verse 2, spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God tells Jacob, Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. What fears might Jacob have had about this journey? Could have been a lot of things. Perhaps he remembered the prophecy, Genesis 15, that Abraham's descendants would one day be enslaved in a foreign land and suffer. They'd be there 400 years. That is, in fact, what will end up happening in Egypt before God redeems them out of Egypt. That could cause apprehension in Jacob. Is this what's going to happen? Are we going to go down and immediately be enslaved or something? Maybe there could have been fear of what had happened when famine had driven his grandfather Abram to Egypt. In that case, it seems that Abram did not have his eyes on his God, just on himself. There had been a famine in Canaan. He'd gone down to Egypt and it had been a big mess. Pharaoh had taken... Abram's wife as his own, thinking that, well, believing Abram's lie that she was only his sister. God had brought plagues on the Pharaoh and his household, and Abram, by God's blessings, uh, came out of Egypt with even more, even more um, to his name, and yet he was probably disgraced for his lies. He was exposed. It wasn't a good situation when Grandfather Abram had gone down to Egypt during famine. Jacob's father Isaac, in time of famine, had been told specifically by God to stay in Canaan and not go down to Egypt. 
So there could be fear now for Jacob that he's, am I ignoring my father Isaac's obedient example of staying in Canaan even when there is famine? Am I going to be acting in unbelief here that God can't provide for me in the promised land? He has Joseph's word from far away that Joseph thinks he should come to Egypt, but is this God's will? Well, he is doing what he knows to do. He's offering sacrifices to God. But he also realizes it seems to be the only thing to do to go to Egypt. Or they'll die where they are. But now God specifically speaks in, he appears to Jacob in visions, it says, of the night. And he says to him, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. This is my plan for your good. I will make you into a great nation in Egypt. He says, and God says, I'm not sending you away from the promised land and away from me. I'm going with you, Jacob. I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. That's an interesting phrase. What does God mean? Could be referring to how he'll bring Jacob again when he's buried to the promised land. It could be more generally speaking of Israel's people whom God will bring back to Canaan. But he says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Notice also, God is making the same sorts of basic promises to Jacob now that he made to him years earlier when he had to leave the promised land for Haran, fleeing from his brother Esau, going to get a wife. Back then, God had pledged to be with, with Jacob. I will be with you and will prosper you and bring you back. Now he's promising the same thing when Jacob has to leave in the opposite direction, down south to Egypt. He's the same God that Jacob's known all his life. He's reassuring Jacob. And the expression that Joseph will close your eyes, his hand will close your eyes, seems to mean that not only will you see Joseph before you die, but he'll outlive you and he'll be there at your death. You thought you'd go down to your grave to Sheol in mourning for Joseph whom you thought dead. Truth is, he's in Egypt and he'll be right there at your side when you die. And he will gently close your eyes in death. So God gives Jacob such comfort after long silence. Again, we'll come back to this later. God is very tender with Jacob after all that's happened. So next, we speed up the pace a bit. We get to verses 5 through 27. And we see Israel and his seed, his offspring, entering Egypt. And you'll see a lot of this is listing names. It's a sort of a tally of Jacob's descendants who end up in Egypt. Let's read it first before we talk more about it. Verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. <clears throat> they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. 
Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanoch, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Another indication that it was kind of good that the people of Israel were moving out of Canaan because there was always the danger of assimilating into the Canaanite culture, marrying Canaanites, becoming like Canaanites. Simeon had a son by a Canaanite woman. Verse 11, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. That was explained back in Genesis 38. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Machiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. Now, a few notes about this list. It's evident, if you get into the details, that this list is carefully crafted to come out to the number 70. We'll talk about possibly why in a second. Um, Seems like Jacob probably had a lot more granddaughters than just one, but only one is mentioned, Sarah, and she is numbered here. Um, but it seems unlikely that he had 54 grandsons and only one granddaughter. That just seems very unlikely. <laughs> um, and uh, it's interesting that also the, the way that this is crafted, that, this is how sometimes genealogies were done. Um, it, it was sort of an art of um, uh, not being inaccurate but at the same time crafting it to make a bigger point. The sons of the two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah, they're each, uh, at least I remember it is for Zilpah this way, they are half the number of descendants as those of Leah, the full-fledged wife. There's also some great-grandsons of Jacob who are listed, and some of them we know because of the timeline they could have, couldn't have been born quite yet, but it's saying they'll come along also, in Egypt. 
And so I won't uh, go into all the reasons why, but we know as we compare things about Benjamin's children and the children of Perez and Zerah and all that, um, some of these people aren't quite born yet during this initial move to Egypt. But Andrew Steinman has this to say about maybe why there's such a focus on the number 70. He says, the inclusion of these grandsons of Jacob may have been prompted by the desire to have a total of 70 persons in the list to mirror the 70 nations said to have descended from Noah as listed in the table of nations, Genesis 10. In this way, the sons of Israel who would bring blessing to all nations were made to mirror those nations. So early in the book of Genesis, we have a table of 70 nations. Now we have a table of 70 people in this line who will bless the nations. Seems to be a theme going on. Um, But in any case, uh, some have suggested that those who were not yet born when Jacob entered Egypt may have been included as those who came to Egypt, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, still in the loins of their ancestor. At any rate, Israel and his seed enter Egypt. They all make it safely there. Now it's time for Jacob at long last to see Joseph whom he thought dead. So we get to verses 28 through 34. Israel and his household are reunited with Joseph. Verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Remember, this is northeast Egypt, uh, the Nile Delta area, um, the first thing they would have come to when they came into Egypt, probably. Verse 29, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. Think of um, the vice president's limo or something. (laughs) He prepared his chariot. This is, this isn't, people didn't just uh, buy their chariot down at the chariot dealer in these days. This wasn't a common household item. This was Joseph's special form of transportation, showing his rank. Okay. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. See, Joseph had this plan all along. He had already told the brothers last time they were in Egypt, I want you in the land of Goshen near me. So Joseph is now telling them the ways of the Egyptian court. This is how you talk to Pharaoh when I present you before him. This is what you emphasize so that we can um, have the desired outcome here. But backing up a bit, it says, Jacob had sent Judah, he'd sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. So Judah, who had played a key role 
as Steinman says, in separating Joseph from his father, Judah had said to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites headed to Egypt. Now Judah is the one facilitating the reunion. Pretty appropriate. And another sign, yet another sign of the full reconciliation that's happened. Then verse 30, Jacob says, now I can die. Meaning, it seems, I can die in peace. I can die happy. I've seen your face again. That's, that, that's a theme that keeps coming up in Jacob's story. You know that? Seeing someone's face is something that comes up over and over in the life of Jacob. Seven times, Genesis talks about Jacob seeing someone's face at a pivotal moment in his life. Chapter 31, he saw that Laban's face had changed toward him. He saw Laban's disapproval. Uh-oh, we need to leave now. We need to go back to Canaan. When he got back near Canaan, he wanted to see Esau's face, hopefully in the sense of forgiveness, rather than Esau cutting him down for, for past grievances. And before he saw Esau's face, he saw the face of God. That's what Peniel or Peniel means, where he wrestled with God and saw God's face. And once he saw God's face in blessing, he wouldn't let God go until he blessed him. Once that happened, he could see Esau's face. And he told Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Now, he sees Joseph's face, a face he thought he would never see again. Interesting theme in Jacob's life. He sees Joseph's face. But now, as I said, Joseph begins to counsel them, instruct them how this is going to go. You're already in Goshen. Let's make sure you can stay here and that this can be your new home. This is, how, this is what you say to Pharaoh. This is what you emphasize about yourselves. Emphasize the fact that you are shepherds and that's all you've ever been. <laughs> that's all you're good for. That's all you know how to do. That would have uh, been a signal to Pharaoh that they weren't coming to be a burden on the kingdom. They weren't coming to seek high office because Joseph, their brother, was already in high office. They're just coming to keep themselves and their flocks and herds alive. They just need good pasture land. Um, That's what they want. It says every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. It's a strong word, abomination. The Egyptians really did not like shepherds. They didn't want to be around them and mixed with them. It may be, for one thing, that the Egyptians didn't like shepherds simply because sheep and goats would tend to eat everything to the ground where they were pasturing. And um, a lot of Egypt outside that, that Nile Delta area Uh, didn't have a lot of land where you could plant things easily. So shepherds and their flocks um, would have been unwelcome in a lot of Egypt. We've mentioned other reasons before why uh, shepherds, and particularly the Hebrews, might have been unwelcome to the Egyptians in their culture. At any rate, we get then to verses 1 through 12 of the next chapter, chapter 47. And finally... Israel and his sons appear before Pharaoh. They have an audience 
actually two audiences. First, some of Jacob's sons, and then Jacob himself has an audience. And in this last section of our text for today, Pharaoh blesses Israel and is himself blessed by Israel. Does that sound like another familiar theme from Genesis? Pharaoh blesses Israel, and then Israel blesses him. Verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Makes me smile. Sounds like Joseph is thinking, hmm, who will be the most impressive of my brothers to Pharaoh? Uh, Love you guys, not you. Uh, These five. Um, He's trying to be very politic about all this before Pharaoh. So he, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. So they're coming to sojourn, not, that's a technical term, they're not coming to get citizenship. They just want to be there for now, sojourn in the land. So in verse 4, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And, if you know any any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Again, Pharaoh trusts Joseph so much by now. He says, Joseph, if you know that any of your of your brothers are really good at what they do, put them in charge of, of the Pharaoh's own livestock. Had good experience with you. Let's see what your brothers can do. That's a pretty positive reception on Pharaoh's part. Verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Interesting, usually the greater blesses the lesser, and Jacob is blessing Pharaoh. Verse 8, And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? See, uh, great age would would have been honored, especially in that culture. Verse 9, And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So he's expressing some humility here. (laughs) Verse 10, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, which was probably a later scribal name for the same area, so later readers could know Uh, where Goshen was. The land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Well, they end up in a very good position. 
They're just sojourners, but they are still in high standing with Pharaoh in Egypt. Joseph, their brother, has saved Egypt from death. So for Joseph's sake, they are honored. And Pharaoh suggests that they become royal stewards of his livestock. Some of them. If Joseph knows them to be skillful in that business. And so as royal administrators, even though they're sojourners, they would have some legal protections not normally available to people just uh, in from another nation. But Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Again, as Meredith Klein puts it, the greater blesses the lesser. The relation of Jacob and his covenant family, he says, to Pharaoh and Egypt was beneficial, particularly through the offices of Joseph. This contrasted with the later disaster inflicted on this empire through Moses when it cruelly oppressed God's people. Their immediate role as vehicle of blessing was illustrative of the Abrahamic covenant's goal. So it illustrates God's covenant with Abraham and the goal of that covenant of blessing the Gentiles through the messianic skion, through the Messiah of Judah's line. What's he saying? Already you have this dynamic that God had promised. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. When Egypt is blessing God's people, God blesses them. Later, when the pharaohs and Egypt curse God's people, (laughs) plagues, curse, death. Already that dynamic's at work in the promised seed line. And one day, one day the Messiah will come through Judah's line And all people will experience either blessing or cursing because of their relationship to him. So this is a good place to review this major theme of Genesis. God's lowly people, the promised seed or offspring, bring blessing to some and cursing to others. This is a war with the serpent that started in Genesis 3. It'll end with the triumph of one offspring, one man, who will crush the serpent and his spiritual offspring. So those who oppose the seed of the woman are under a curse. Those who are accounted with the seed of the woman will be blessed. God had said to the serpent in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, because you have done this, you pulled humanity into your sin and into the curse of sin and death. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then this promise of seed, offspring, had been made very particular to Abram when God had called him out of his home area, Ur of the Chaldeans. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, literally who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God repeated that, Genesis 22, when Abraham had been willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac at God's command. And God stopped him. But Genesis 22, starting in verse 16, the angel of the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Later, as Isaac is conferring the blessing on Jacob, thinking he's Esau, <laughs> but as Isaac is blessing Jacob, he says, as part of that, Genesis twenty-seven twenty-nine, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Certainly we've seen early indications of this dynamic at work in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? All through their lives. They were God's representatives, and God took seriously how people treated them. As Psalm 105 puts it, when they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he, the Lord, allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. But though their oppressors would be cursed, remember, Israel's primary purpose was that of blessing the nations in the end. Blessing the nations. So we see another instance of this in Joseph saving Egypt and in Jacob blessing Pharaoh. And it's all a dim shadow of the ultimate seed of the woman, the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ. And he will inherit all nations. And those who take refuge in him are blessed. But those who curse him are cursed. Psalm 2, verses 7-12, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, that is, do him homage. Lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. World history is now the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man exalted to heaven, ruling from God's right hand and ruling over all things for the good of his people. And those who curse him and his people are cursed and will soon be blown away like the chaff. Those who bless him and thus bless his people too are blessed. There's two sides here. Two options. What's your attitude toward Jesus Christ? What's your attitude toward his people? Well, again, the big idea of the text. Standing on God's promises, Israel settled in Egypt to become a great nation. Now, I appreciate your patience as we work through the text. It's not, it's not the most riveting of all the texts in Genesis, um, but it's God's word. Let's talk about the relevance of the story, how it's directly relevant to us in two ways. 
First, God never forsakes his people or his promises. Now, when I first say that, if you've been in these chairs very long, your eyes may start to glaze over because you're human. And you think, well, duh, that, that's pretty basic. So why make a big deal of it? Because it's a big deal in this text. God never forsakes his people or his promises. And I'm getting this particularly from the fact that here in this chapter we have a a huge shift for Jacob from darkness to light. God had chosen Jacob by his grace. He'd given him the promises of Abraham and Isaac. God had wrestled with him. Jacob strove with God and with man. And God had let him prevail. God had renamed Jacob Israel, which indicated that spiritual transformation he'd worked in him. But as far as we know, by the time we get to Genesis 46, God had not spoken to Jacob for decades. There had been nothing directly from God. Aside from some prophetic dreams his son Joseph had had. Nothing. Not since Genesis 35. After that last appearance of God at Bethel, Jacob had descended into darkness for 20, maybe 30-some years. His beloved wife, Rachel, the love of his life, right after that last appearance of God, she died while giving birth to Benjamin. Then Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, slept with Jacob's lesser wife, Bilhah. Eventually, Jacob's father, Isaac, died. Seems like Jacob's mother, Rebekah, had died earlier before he could ever see her again while he'd been up north. So Jacob is bereaved of his one true love and of his parents. They're all gone. And he's radically dishonored and violated by his firstborn. So what's Jacob's one remaining treasure? The one thing that gives his life joy. Joseph, Rachel's son, and Benjamin, who's still little. So he lavishes Joseph with honor and responsibility, and Joseph is trustworthy. So he trusts Joseph rather than his older brothers. He favors him. But can we really blame Jacob that much for that? I mean, humanly speaking, can't we understand? Then Jacob sends Joseph on a mission to Check on his brother's welfare. But Joseph never comes back. The brothers send back Joseph's robe, his special robe that Jacob had given him, smeared with blood. Jacob thinks Joseph's been torn apart in the wild. And so Jacob just goes into perpetual mourning. No one can comfort him. Then after 20 long years, famine strikes the land. They don't even know how they're going to survive. But Jacob manages to get his sons to go to Egypt. These quarrelsome brothers. He he gets them to get together and go to Egypt to get food. And what happens in the wake of that? Well, Simeon doesn't come back. The Egyptian governor imprisons Simeon and demands to see Benjamin face to face if they're going to get any more food. 
Jacob is a man who's shell-shocked by decades of tragedy and grief. But eventually he has to even allow Benjamin, Rachel's one last son, to go to an uncertain fate. This man to whom he's sending him, this tyrant it seems, is not trustworthy from all appearances. Jacob doesn't know what's going to happen, but he throws himself on God Almighty as he says. May God Almighty grant you favor before the man, he tells his boys. And if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Who wouldn't pity Jacob? God has hidden the light of his countenance from Jacob. This man renamed Israel cannot see God's face. No wonder Jacob told Pharaoh soon after this, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. That's how he felt about it. But after darkness, there's light. Without warning, suddenly, Jacob is told by his returning sons, not only did he get all his sons back, including Simeon, he told Joseph is alive. And Joseph is Lord of all Egypt. He's the family's savior from famine. In fact, Joseph is going to give Israel and his family the best land in all Egypt. Jacob not only gets to see Joseph again, they're going to live right next to each other. One happy family, and the brothers are all reconciled to each other. But what are we to make of all this? When things suddenly went from night to day for Jacob, did that mean, did that mean God had suddenly woken up and remembered his promises to his chosen people? I'm not being disrespectful because I'm saying God's not like this. It's not as if God hit the snooze button too many times and he wakes up and says, I'm sorry, Jacob. I'm sorry about the last 20 years. Let let me fix it for you. No! That's not what God was doing. God had orchestrated absolutely everything about these past decades to accomplish this unimaginable good that no one saw coming. Not Joseph, not Jacob, not his sons. God had been there all the time, but he'd been hidden in the darkness. God gave Joseph those dreams to make his brothers resent him, but also to glorify himself when they actually came true. When Joseph was sold into slavery, it was God's plan to send him into Egypt and prepare him for his great task. When Judah left his father and brothers to live among the Canaanites, God was paving the way for Judah's humbling and his transformation. When Jacob had to give up Benjamin, it was God's plan to restore Joseph to Jacob and to reconcile the entire family. And now God was sending Jacob and his family to Egypt to make this little clan a great nation. Living out the fat of the land. As Pharaoh said. Because God never forsakes his people or his promises. Regardless of how it looks. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Those he's called to himself according to his unshakable purpose. To Jacob, God finally speaks in Genesis 46 after 
after a long silence. But God has been with Jacob the whole time. Now God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I also will bring you up again. And Christian, God has said no less to you. Jacob's heir is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, you are Abraham's seed. You are an heir according to promise. God will never leave you or forsake you. That's not just true of all of us together. It's true of each of us individually, the scripture says. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you, For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's spoken to redeemed Israel, of whom we are part. In Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16, this is how Jacob describes his God to Joseph. He says, the, he calls him the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. But again, the psalmist David speaks the same for every one of God's people. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I'll, I'll lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is, God's name is on the line and how he treats me. And on whether or not I stay in the paths of righteousness. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Is the Lord your shepherd? Do you belong to him? Do you have his promises? Do you know the one who laid down his life for the sheep? And it says to each one of them, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I hope you do. And there's nothing stopping you. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. Now, the second and last point I think I should make about this story and its relevance. We said, number one, God never forsakes his people or his promises. Number two, briefly, God's temporal blessings in this world 
The blessings we experience here and now, which are good, but they don't last forever. God's temporal blessings in this world are still not our inheritance. Now, this will come up in various ways as we finish out the book of Genesis, but it already starts here. Israel prospered when they first came to Egypt, but they were still sojourners. They were not at home, and they knew it. This was God's good provision for them for the time being, but it was not the promised land. And it's the same with us in this world. It's good for us to remember this. And it's not that we dare not enjoy God's good gifts now. In fact, we'd be ungrateful not to. But this isn't home. First Peter makes a big deal of the fact that just like God's people who sojourned in Egypt, and just like God's people later who are exiles from the promised land in Babylon, so it calls believers in Jesus Christ elect exiles of the dispersion. First Peter 1.1 1, 1. We are God's dispersed ones throughout the earth. We are in exile. We're not at home. But we can still serve God where we are. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's saying this after calling us elect exiles of the dispersion. It says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefi- <clears throat> undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're exiles. You're dispersed. But you have a secure inheritance that will never lose its luster, its shine. It'll never rot away or be stolen. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Later in that same chapter, verse 17 Peter says, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, a holy reverence, throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Next chapter, 1 Peter 2. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We'll talk more about one specific example of that this afternoon as Paul talks about sexual holiness in 1 Thessalonians. But it's much broader than that. All the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we have to keep this distinction in mind. This isn't home and this isn't our inheritance. Pardon me. This isn't home and this isn't our inheritance. So, if we are sojourners and exiles, 
what should our attitude be toward the good things that we encounter in this present life? What if, like Jacob and his family, we find ourselves with with plenty of outward prosperity for now? Even as others in this world actually lack what they need. How do we avoid pride and security in our earthly prosperity? Well, simply put, we remember this isn't home, and we invest what we have now in our true inheritance. We connect what we have now effectively to what we have securely in eternity. We connect the two. We use one, we use the lesser for the greater. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17-19, this is what Paul tells us. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't be full of yourself, because I have all this stuff. I have what I need. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It can be gone tomorrow. Egypt may enrich you today, it may enslave you tomorrow. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Don't just be rich in stuff, but rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This life isn't the real life. It's not the the ultimate. It's not the abundant life of eternity. So use this life to grab hold of what's truly life. And use everything you have toward that goal. Everything. Like Jacob and his sons, we Christians in America find ourselves with unusual prosperity at the moment, don't we? If we look at world history, we do. Even with alarming inflation and all the negatives we could list, we're still brain-bustingly rich in world history terms. Let's take another look at how we're investing our resources. Not just our money, certainly that, but everything we have. Are we investing and spending as if this life is the only only one we have? Or are we using what we have now for God's eternal kingdom and righteousness? Seeking first his kingdom and righteousness. Are we using our budgets and our possessions and our opportunities to suck this world dry of every pleasurable experience we crave? We're afraid that we'll miss something in this life. Are we afraid that we'll miss an opportunity to to get comfort and security for ourselves? We're to protect ourselves from some earthly loss. Sometimes it's tempting not to be very giving with what we have because we always think, well, what if? What if I need this for security tomorrow? Well, your hope isn't in your stuff. It's in God who gives you what you need, right? Or are we rather using our budgets and our possessions and our opportunities to build Christ's kingdom. Goshen may be nice, and we should thank God for it, but it's still in Egypt. 
and Egypt will not last. There's plagues coming on Egypt. And it'll all end with the death angel. This world will burn up. Let's thank God for his good gifts and invest them in the eternal inheritance he's promised us. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And we, I ask that you'll take me in my foibles and frailties out of the way, as it were, and make your word effective in your people's hearts. Thank you that you lead us all our life long as our shepherd if we belong to you through faith in Christ. If there are those here who don't think the good shepherd is good and don't want him as their shepherd, please change their hearts. We pray it for their good and for your glory because you are so gloriously honored when people trust in the good shepherd and don't keep straying like stubborn sheep. Lord, thank you that you lead us all our life long. You are with us every step of the way. And help us to remember that we are on a sojourn, a pilgrimage in this world. It's not our home. Remind us that you are our true treasure. And you give us the inheritance that will never fade. Help us to be wise in this world and lay up treasure for eternity. Help us to help each other do that better as well. We're not very good at it, Lord, but help us by your grace to be better and to keep abounding in this. Lord, thank you for the comforts of your word, the warnings of your word. May you make them effective, effectual in our lives for lasting change, that we may reflect your glory. This is the cry of our heart, Lord, and we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.